0: You can find more information, photos, and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sararaven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast with myself, Arthur Parkinson, and my good and fabulous friend, Sarah Raven. And sadly, Sarah isn't with us this week because I know we're interviewing one of her favourite cut flower growers, Millie Proust, which I'm delighted to interview because it's one of the few names of people that I can pronounce really well. So I'm going to be saying Millie Proust a lot in this interview. And I've got in front of me her absolutely beautiful, gorgeous book, which is a complete celebration of a wonderful style of growing flowers from seed to bloom. Welcome Millie to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange and I'm really excited to talk about your new book and your life of flowers because I believe actually you started out in life
1: as an actor, is that right? Yes, thanks so much for having me Arthur, I'm so happy to be here chatting to you. I did start out life as an actor but I've had many different jobs because as an actor often you don't get to do that full time so that's been one of my roads to here and I I really am just quite new still to growing flowers. I've been growing commercially now for five years but really on the smallest scale but yeah so very new to it really.
0: I mean instantly what I sense from you is you are incredibly creative with how you're growing your flowers so the photographs in, in this book are, are beautiful and you get a sense of of your home and the colours you like straight away, which are, you know, beautiful toffee palette, isn't it, pink, amy magus in there and brillifers, and then I can see there's a lovely photo of you in the introduction, you've got a bucket full of wonderful peony tulips, I can see brownie in there and labella Pock and there's um. Elements of perchill Sarah's sort of style as well the the hawthorn hedges and the cherry blossom and what looks like a beautiful building you're in Sussex, aren't you actually like Sarah?
1: That's right. Perchill has long been a garden of great admiration for me, and I've taken so much inspiration mm. over the years. Really, where I learned how to grow flowers was from Sarah's books, and um, a lot of the color palettes that that she's come up with have been definitely used as inspiration. I'm super interested in colour and um, my mum was my primary school art teacher and I think it's one of the most mm. interesting things how colours play with each other and how subjective and personal colour is to people.
0: Yeah and form as well you've clearly got a real eye for almost treating your flowers like like they're on a stage and what I like about your book straight away is, is it's a feeling of not necessarily rows of cut flowers there's there's more persian carpetness going on here i see on the next page there's a photo of you picking lovely cheerful lemon posset colored narcissi amongst faded fritillaries and emerging perennials i can see this is this is a book that will be helpful i think to anybody who simply wants flowers in their gardens it's not necessarily a a crop growing a crop of cut flowers. It's more having flowers beautifully in your garden as well as your life. Would would you agree with that? Was that something you wanted the book to feel like or have I just imagined that?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's definitely part of what I do. So my growing space is really small for a cut flower grower who's growing for market and events. It's really tiny. And I can get a lot from it, but that it partly comes from under planting, interplanting, and the soil is much healthier if if I treat it with a lot of respect. And I think in the, in what I've learned as I go along is that having stuff laid out, which is really helpful for time, isn't necessarily that helpful for the garden to be at its healthiest. So it's a little bit to do with the amount of space I have and how much crop I want to be able to get from it but it's also about having the biodiversity and the different crops in between and if a seedling fails in a line I'll always just fill it in with whatever's ready to go so that there's I'm utilizing every single space and not wasting an inch basically
0: yeah so where where do your cut flowers go to I've I've looked on your website it's a beautiful ethos of growing cut flowers are you supplying do people come to you asking for wedding flowers or is it event floristry or do you simply take your flowers to you know New Covent Garden Market to sell?
1: I, I wish I had enough to sell at New Covent Garden uh, Market. <laughs> but when I started, I was growing vegetables and flowers and I had a full-time job in London still that I was commuting back to. And I had a lovely deli that I'd go to for lunch sometimes and I started selling them vegetables. And that was just the first year that I was growing on a bigger scale. Five years ago, so this is my sixth year of growing on a bigger scale. And then I, by the end of this season, I was doing weddings—just my friends' weddings. And then the following year, I was doing the sisters of friends and a few strangers. Asked, and I built up my confidence and my skill set, and started taking my work down to more freelance and picking and choosing so I could juggle both of them and putting more time Mm. and energy into being able to grow my business. And so I just did weddings, but only a handful a year—maybe five or six. And then COVID hit and all the flowers I'd grown for weddings and I had events that year too were about to burst into flower in the field. And obviously all the weddings and events were cancelled. So the amount of energy and time and like financial as well, the stuff that you're putting in is is months ahead when you're growing like this for, for people. So because my my business was so small and so fragile, and just at the beginning, it was so close to being crippled and totally stopped by the pandemic. But a lot of my other work dried up too. So I sort of had no choice but to, to figure out what to do with all these flowers. And my grandmother was living with me at the time. We moved her in because of COVID. And she was a brilliant influence on my life and she incredibly stoic and always full of solutions said, just get them out there. You people need flowers more than ever because you can find hope in flowers and people need hope right now. So just give it a go, allowing other people to, to have them, not just um, weddings. And so I started doing nationwide bunches and I sold every stem that I grew that year. It was, it was really an amazing response. And I felt really, really lucky that I had a good customer base just from Instagram, really, and my newsletter sign up, and people really, really responded to them, and I saw a lot of the goodness and humanity in in the, the the notes that people were writing to each other and the sort of love that was going amongst people. So that was that was a big pivot, and then the weddings and events started back up last year, and I, I work for a few. Just com- I do a few commissions now, and I do local deliveries now. But the book was something that I that I wanted to write because working with a perishable crop is is a big being a big learning curve and it's really really hard. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a few things that were not so perishable and uh, a few things that had that th- about what I'd learned and the journey because the flowers the the journey that I've I've been on with the flowers is that they've become so much more than flowers. They're they're so such an intimate thing and I've been totally fascinated by the relationship not only between me and this plot of land but between humans and flowers.
0: Mm. You're being very modest by this plot of land painting out a, a picture of a small garden I have to say it looks it looks like you're growing quite a lot I mean there's a beautiful photo of you with your tulips how many tulips are you expecting to have in flower this spring?
1: So this spring, I'm doing a slightly different thing. So last year, I grew thousands of tulips because the year before I mm. sold every single stem in the pandemic, and I wished that I'd grown more. So last year, I, I continued to do that. But this year, I'm pivoting again. I'm not going to do nationwide deliveries this year. I'm going to focus on just the local market. And the tulips always sell really well, but it's such a short season. And it's, they're such an expensive crop that I've I'm luck- lucky to be a small enough business where I can look at these numbers and pivot each year but I think I'm only growing 3000 this year so last year it was more like 5 or 6000 to sell so just minimizing downsizing a little <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that because of the spring bulbs have have taken on what tulips were I noticed on on Instagram there's a fashion more now I think for for Narcissa, actually more perenniality and what I sense from your book is you are wanting to be sustainable and, and more perennial than the sort of funfair effects of what tulips bring to a garden. Is that something that's changed as you've grown into your own gardener and, and flower ranger? I'm just scanning through the book and there is a a sense of seasons and sustainability from you and wanting to nurture the wildlife in your garden. What what would you say are your favourite sort of flowers to grow that fit into your sort of ethos
1: yeah i think that's such an interesting question and definitely with the tulips i'm i'm such a sucker for tulips especially the double Mm. peony types i think they're one of the most beautiful things and the scent from them so i i I can't imagine not growing them but yeah you're definitely right at picking up that that thing and sustainability is such a big word it has to encompass so much a small scale sustainable business has to be sustainable financially too so tulips are a really expensive crop they get people in because they're such a delicious flower such a so early on with the amount of colors that you can have they're always a showstopper but it's very very hard to make money from from tulips on the scale that i grow and they all mm. blow open at once that's the that's the other thing of like the, the perishable crop <laughs> thing is that the tulips the a cold spring can hold them back and then one warm day and you have to sell you know a thousand in a day and that's really tricky so yeah definitely wow. more interested in the perennial things the things that the energy i have at the moment for my business i can plow it into the earth and then it can reward me for years to come and that i think is really vital to be able to be sustainable in that respect, for a lot longer, because I really would love my business to, to keep growing and just keep living and surviving so so definitely I, I really love Narcissus so and I'm really glad that there does seem you're so right there does seem to be a trend for narcissists at the moment, so I think they are really spectacular and people have realized they're not just the bright yellow ones at the start of the season there's some really interesting varieties to to try and enjoy.
0: yeah, you in your book you describe. Uh, an narcissi library, gorgeous um, old, I forgot what they're called, those sort of jars that are like um, ivory and cream. They're not ink pots, are they? Because they're solid. But there's a lovely four page photo of all these different varieties. And Sarah, actually, last year at Perchill, we had lots of pink centred narcissi. And at first I didn't like them. But what your book portrays so well is how gorgeous a lot of what we would consider almost garish flowers to be if they're brought inside into the vase and arranged beautifully they become beautiful don't they do you find that people obviously you're growing to to sell do you find you have to be careful going towards too freakish and what would be considered garish flowers or do you find that your clientele because you're arranging it so beautifully they go oh my god that's beautiful (laughs)
1: <laughs> I love that I think that's such an interesting thing and it's something that I've struggled with because the trend really is to have those muddy muted colours and I do love them mm. but the, the colours that speak to me the most are I love primary colours I love secondary colours I love tertiary colours so mm. the colours that you get on the colour wheel and then I love pastels so I love anything the tints tones and shades of colours there's the tints are so the ones with the white and I love them I love seeing how they can go from desaturated to saturated and the, the, the one that are really in fashion are the, the tones which is the white and the black combined and I think if I'm right Arthur you love the tones which are the ones with a little bit of black in them so you get that really really rich intense deep dramatic yeah color.
0: rusty mm.
1: and um, I'm really interested about the sort of how much I can push what I find interesting and in the experiments with color that I make how much I can feed that into the work that I have to sell and a lot of the brides and clients and commissions that come to me, they already know my work, which is great. So people are finding me through Instagram. So they might have fo- followed me for a while or, or sign up to my newsletter. And so those are the, the people that I want to be my client because they are interested in what I can make and how I s- sort of interact with colour and I seem to be more open to having um, their ideas shifted or allow a sort of creative freedom, which is so wonderful. Those are the exact sort of customers that I'm after. But um, I always do my best to listen to a client's brief and if they are more interested in the sort of muddy muted tones i absolutely go for them and if they love the the like you the sort of rich stained glass colors then i'd work with that i I try and grow a, a variety of colors just to keep practicing with but also to cover the sort of different clients that i might have that year
0: yeah I notice in your book there's a real blend of traditional cut flowers with with the modern cut flowers, which are you know the fast half hardy cut and come again. But you've got in a lot of your arrangements mixed in the most gorgeous roses, like um, the those lovely coffee moody tones, and then you've got your peonies. What kind of balance are you finding? You have to have of a good backbone to a cutting garden versus the annual displays to to help you financially, really, I suppose. And was that a big investment when you first decided to go into cut flowers? Were you spending, you know, all that chunk of, of the pay packet on a, a peony catalogue? Or did you did you find it little by little?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really important consideration to have when you're starting a cut flower garden, which is also for business. But a cut flower garden in any kind of capacity is really reliant on, perennials and shrubs shrubs are amazing Mm. so the bigger investments like the peony patch i've got 52 peonies and i made that investment in one go but i don't make big investments like that in big clusters so they come at the usually in january after the tax return i'll look at what i have in the business pot and i have wish lists my wish lists are huge but i know that still Mm. my um my ambitions are fairly small in what I do here, but I would love to be able to grow everything I ever dreamed of. But yeah, that will take time and build up little collections. So I invested in uh, an iris collection two years ago, which I'm so excited about, which is a bearded iris collection to fill that gap between the ranunculus and then the peonies that they come just just perfectly between. So I'm excited about that. And then the roses for me are the biggest, most important part of a cutting garden because A garden rose that's grown with love and weather touching it is so different from the roses that you get from the market you you can't really you can't really beat a a lovingly grown and not flown rose there's something so magic and Mm. something so different about it so they're my absolute favorite and they're an expensive crop to grow really expensive but for me really worth it and make a design that bit more exceptional
0: what's your favorite rose then
1: I've got so many oh I really love summer song I love the the interesting colors that you don't really see very often in roses I've got Cinco de Mayo which is like this deep intense raspberry cherry color with this this sweet sort of softness that when it ages and oh burgundy ice is this one that's a delicious sort of mm. suede plum colored one and then I I do love mocha rosa which is like a very vintage silk color it looks like the sort of um, 1920s ladies' pair of silk knickers, which I absolutely adore. <laughs> but I I, I just I can't get enough of roses, to be honest. And my birthday falls mm. in June, and so my family members and my friends often will buy me a rose plant for my birthday, knowing that nothing gives me greater pleasure. So my collection has been built up oh. a little bit with the help of... Um, Of birthdays.
0: (laughs) I think that's such a good idea. I get really cross when people spend 60 quid on a you know an out-of-season bunch of flowers but we've just had Valentine's Day haven't we and if, if everyone instead of buying a bunch of Kenyan imported roses bought a lovely rose plant our gardens would all be full of beautiful roses wouldn't they?
1: Yeah absolutely.
0: I love your Dutch still life style of arranging where you've got a really beefy heart full of lovely shapes and faces I think, I mean I'm just looking at this one arrangement where you've used florist anemones, ranunculus I can even see little bits of auriculas in there and cherry blossom and foliage and you've got uh, bits of swan necks peeking out and the heights and how did you teach yourself that, or did you did you go on a course? How did that come about, or or did you just simply look at paintings? I mean, some of the photos in this book do indeed look like Dutch master oil paintings.
1: So I I left drama school about seven eight years ago now, and I didn't have like leftover funding to put myself through any more education. But when I came out, mm-hmm. I went and worked at a florist shop for a bit and interned there, and knew that I loved it and wanted to learn about it. And when I moved out of London, I had more access to growing and I was really interested in growing. I I, I couldn't afford a course. So I did lots of library books, lots of YouTube. There are so so many amazing free resources out there. If you're struggling to put yourself through a course, there's a lot. And I remember watching endlessly the same Sarah Raven video of how to make a bouquet until I got the spiral technique down. And then just like through practice and taking pictures of what I do and that's also partly why I wanted to write a book there are so many different ways of making a bouquet and and being creative with flowers and Mm. I wanted to make it a sort of very accessible easy to understand um book full of ideas and yeah it's been mainly through trial and error and I've made some really bad flowers in the past but I, I can see that I'm getting better all the time and I have still so much to learn and there's still so many new combinations to try which I'm so excited about and I do look at paintings a lot. My mum my being my primary school art teacher, I was dragged around a lot of art galleries as a kid. And uh, I, then I worked at an art archive for 13 years. So I worked in the art world and and had a, quite a lot of exposure to sort of form and design elements of, of the art world and thinking about that a lot. So I bring some of that into my work. And I definitely am really inspired mm. by some of the Dutch master paintings and that um, arrangement that you're talking about is very much Dutch masters inspired, so I, I do I do try to look really closely and carefully at at those sorts of things and take inspiration and learn from them as much as I can.
0: I love the titles of all your different arrangements. I've just gone straight to the back of the book and I'm now looking at your Winter Wonderland bouquet, and it, it's it's so much of a tapestry and almost like a a hedge that you've thrown together, but it's, it's beautiful. And there's such an array of, of different flowers within. I think that's what, what excites me about your, your style and your whole garden. There's an ethos of going back to nature. You're, you're doing, you know, your hazel arches and hurdles, aren't you? And you've planted your hedges and your book is, all the arrangements in your book are completely floral foam free. I mean, the book, the book almost ends on your compostable wreath, which looks looks absolutely beautiful with that lovely bell in the middle of it. And I love the fact that all of the arrangements have step-by-step photos because I think it's very easy to do the finale of what you've done, but you really hold your reader's hand through the book. Was that something that you were thinking about whenever you were planning the book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of it was creating the thing that I wish I'd had to sort of jump me ahead three or four years mm. And I do I do love the learning process so and I think it is interesting to see people's process and, and everyone's process is so different and there are so many different ways of doing flowers. And I think I still feel like a bit of a floral intruder in the industry having not had a an actual qualification in doing this. But the ways that I've I've figured out how to do things aren't necessarily the ways that you're gonna get taught in a school, but they work for me and I hope that showing my working out basically will encourage people to find their own ways and their own solutions and in working without foam and and whatever feels comfortable for them and i think the step-by-steps were really important they're also really hard to capture and i it was Mm. it made the book making the book quite difficult but i'm really glad i did it because i do think they'll be useful for people
0: yeah you have a um a a greenhouse and a, a polytunnel what are the things that you're most looking forward to growing this summer
1: So the greenhouse is still really, really really new. I've only had it for just over a year. So the book was the first season growing with the greenhouse. The rest of the time I've been doing it on windowsills or in the polytunnel. And I am really looking forward to growing some really interesting sweet pea varieties, not the annual types. I've got some sativas and some cirrhosis. I really want to find some things that i've not grown before and that uh, are gonna make interesting colors or interesting shapes and i'm looking forward to working with long vines and making some things that feel like they're growing out of the house
0: (laughs) yeah like snakes
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: (laughs) (laughs) wonderful and um your hedgerows feature quite a lot in the book autumn branches you've got sloes crab apples lovely hawthorn berries and i see around your cutting garden you've you've planted a hedge is that precisely to add to your arrangements or is it quite I mean it looks it doesn't look very exposed where you are but I I suppose photos don't always show that
1: yeah so we we live in a bit of a dip so it's actually fairly sheltered here but I'm on Mm. the edge of uh, of a wood and there's so much wildlife here that it felt rude to not keep inviting them into the into the garden so having those corridors not only bring the wildlife in, but they do supply me with a lot of extra ingredients, which are lovely. I mean, for, for me, the things that you can find in the hedgerow make are some of the most interesting ingredients to use. And they're the sort of things that flower with abandon and make the landscape look so beautiful at this time of year so that you can really then echo the landscape in, in the work if you're using things that are so inherently in our landscape. So wherever you may be, if you're not in England, whatever's in your hedgerow, is lovely to use in your work. And they also act as keeping wild some wildlife out. So deers, I've planted up my hedgerow with things that will deter them and keep them mm-hmm. on the right side of the fence. <laughs> um, also, they make some really good windbreaks, which is, I think, really important for anybody to know where their wind is coming from and where their sun is coming from. And I talk a bit about that in the book, but hed- hedgerows are really a useful way to make your growing space a better environment for your flowers
0: are you doing all your growing and arranging in these events on your own or do you have any help
1: yeah I uh I do most of it on my own which mm. is really really intense but I have a group of freelancers that I've built up over the years to help me with events and then I have two wonderful chaps who come every Thursday Justin and Kev, who are my absolute heroes, and they they help me out for one afternoon a week, and they help me keep this place looking better than it would if it was just under my control. But they help me with things that I can't do, like heavy lifting, and I'm pretty strong, but um, there is a limit to my capabilities. And help me with uh, keeping things mown and trimmed, and yeah, on top of it, when the season gets really tough.
0: Well, you're very strong, and you are incredibly talented, and this book is an absolute triumph, Millie. I can't wait for you to do. Another one. I think it's going to be a real honest help and uh, inspiration to anybody with a cutting garden or someone who's thinking about having a cutting garden, or to be honest, someone who's got a garden and they want the best of a perennial border and a cut flower garden. You've managed to combine the two things, and I'm just loving looking through all these gorgeous photos of you and your flowers. You are a talent, and you can see all of Millie's beautiful work on her Instagram, which is so beautiful if you're having a a dull day and you want to escape down a rabbit hole of floral beauty do check out Millie Prowse thank you for being my guest Millie
1: oh thanks so much Arthur that's so nice and thanks so much for all your beautiful books that you've put out because they've been a huge inspiration and yeah the more flowers the merrier
0: yes couldn't agree more Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie Arrange. Next week, Arthur's chatting to Jane Howarth from the British Hen Welfare Trust, something really dear to Arthur's heart. So you will see both of them then. You can find more information photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahovind.com